we got the alternative energy. free autonomy. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. This Radioactive Show has been produced on Wurundjeri Country of the Kulin Nations. And I'd like to acknowledge elders, past and present, and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Today we are turning to the war in Ukraine, and in particular, the manifold nuclear threats arising from this conflict. To explore these issues are two experts in their fields, Jim Green, National Nuclear Free Campaigner with Friends of the Earth Australia, and Tillman Ruff, co-founder of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Later in the show, Jim Green highlights the precarious situation unfolding at Ukraine's nuclear power plants and at the site of the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear power catastrophe. First, though, we'll hear from Tillman Ruff about the heightened risk of the use of nuclear weapons currently and why the global community now more than ever must push for the disarmament of all nuclear weapons states. Uh, So I'm joined by Tillman Ruff, who has been co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War since 2012 and is co-founder of ICANN, which is, of course, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Tillman, it's been quite the time for global nuclear threats. Can you explain how the war in Ukraine heightens the risk of the use of nuclear weapons? Thanks, Emma. I think this is arguably really the most profound crisis in terms of the level of risk of nuclear war, at least since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1961, um, when Russia and um, when the Soviet Union and the United States came extraordinarily close to launching nuclear weapons, and neither side knew how close, in fact, they were. Um, There are multiple factors at play here. Uh, Clearly, Russia has initiated an aggressive, a very brutal invasion where it it seems to be completely uh, ignoring the laws of war, the standards enshrined in the Geneva Conventions and many other places to which all nations are committed, which require civilian objects, civilians' infrastructure that supports civilians like food, energy, Um, medicine, supplies, essential communications, hospitals, educational and cultural institutions to be protected. That's clearly gone by the wayside. They've also taken the additional absolutely unprecedented step of mounting um, military assaults, including heavy shelling of active operating nuclear power plants um, in the Zaporizhia plant, which that and the Chernobyl site, they have taken over. Um, so there are profound risks of, of radiological disaster due to, to those um, attacks and takeover and disruption of functioning. But in terms of nuclear weapons, Russia, of course, is the country that has the largest number of nuclear weapons um, in the world. It has close to 1,600 deployed strategic weapons, so that's big, long-range weapons. And in addition, it has close to 2,000 tactical nuclear weapons, essentially their lower yield and shorter range designed for sort of battlefield use. Um, In addition, the United States, of course, has 
a very similar number of deployed strategic weapons, in fact, a few more, um, and about 100 nuclear weapons stationed in five European countries, uh, Belgium, Netherlands, Germany, Italy, and Turkey, that if push comes to shove, would be delivered by aircraft of those countries. Mm -hmm. In addition, of course, uh, France has 280 nuclear weapons and the United Kingdom, also a NATO member, has 120. So between them, the nations that are directly involved in some way here, Russia and the NATO nuclear armed states, between them have over 95% of the world's nuclear weapons. They also have all of the 2,000 nuclear weapons that are thought to be on high alert. So that's weapons that are on delivery vehicles and able to be launched within minutes of a decision to do so. And all of those countries have policies that would allow for the first use of nuclear weapons um, if things are going badly on the battlefield, if they were facing uh, imminent defeat, uh, they have the currently the policies and procedures in place to allow the first use of nuclear weapons. Of course, when you add to that the additional layers of extraordinary misinformation, um, the chaos and, and, and fog of war that makes knowing what's going on really difficult, especially when there's very aggressive uh, cyber attacks on including um, that com nuclear command and control systems are vulnerable to. This is a recipe for escalation, even if nobody wants it. So it's a very profoundly dangerous situation. Mm, that's an alarming picture that you've painted there. Um, and what what is the international community doing about it or what, what um, is ICANN um, able to do in terms of influencing this situation? Yes, I think sort of two aspects to this. One is one is short term and, and one is longer term. In the shorter term, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has done some really aggressive things that have really put the prospect, the spectre of nuclear war firmly within the bounds of possibility by repeatedly reminding the world that Russia has a very powerful nuclear arsenal, making implied and in some cases quite direct threats that those who assist Ukraine militarily, who interfere with uh, Russia's invasion, um, you know, would face consequences such as they've never seen in their history, a fairly thinly veiled uh, nuclear threat. He has put nuclear forces on higher alert mm. and has, since the conflict began, or the invasion began, he has actually conducted quite aggressive exercises of nuclear-capable systems and missiles both on land and sea. So this is not just a situation where, um, you know, this is, this is kind of empty talk or a theoretical prospect. Um, so I think there's two issues really. Short-term, every single voice in the world that can be raised and mustered, every single point of peaceful leverage um, to encourage leaders to negotiate, to step back from the brink for an early ceasefire, for a negotiated settlement, for de-escalation of this conflict, to rule out um, the use of nuclear weapons under any circumstances, as the leaders of all of those nuclear armed states that I mentioned before, um, and China, in addition, in January, they repeated 
President Reagan and Gorbachev's famous statement from the mid-80s that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. Mm. Um, but they're not acting in, in concert with that. So I think we should take some comfort. It's good that um, NATO and the US in particular have not ratcheted up the rhetoric or the alert status of nuclear forces uh, to match Russia's um, aggressive stance. But whatever can be done to hose down this situation acutely, and particularly the, just the raising of voices globally in all sectors um, by everybody uh, is, is really urgent. And then, of course, the longer-term work, because obviously, you know, traction in this, um, in this sort of acute situation is very difficult uh, to, to feel that you can have an influence. Um, but I think particularly supporting colleagues and, and people in, in Ukraine and in Russia, there are very courageous voices in Russia. Thousands of people have been arrested and detained for weeks at a time because of simple protest activities. Um, they need our support and encouragement. Longer term, I hope that the silver lining in this very dark cloud is that a whole lot more people will realise that nuclear weapons are not done and dusted and not yesterday's problem are a real and present danger that threatens us all and that need to be gotten rid of so that in the next crisis we're not facing um, you know, a similar sort of planet-wide near-death experience. As, as one um, Canadian diplomat put it recently, we simply have to uh, one time our luck is going to run out in these sorts of crises unless we eliminate nuclear weapons. So that makes the work promoting the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons the one sort of bright spot in the disarmament landscape even more important. Countries joining onto that, faithfully implementing its obligations. Um, Australia needs to be at that meeting, even though it has opposed the treaty at the first meeting of states' parties, which is likely to happen um, mid-year. Um, mm -hmm. Australia needs to join that treaty. Mm -hmm. um, we need to really ramp up our efforts across society to deal with this twin existential threat that we face along with the climate crisis. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, and we just heard from Dr Tillman Ruff, co-chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Next is Dr Jim Green, nuclear-free campaigner with Friends of the Earth Australia, discussing the dangerous status of Ukraine's nuclear power plants and the former Chernobyl nuclear power reactor. I understand that a number of nuclear facilities have already been hit in in the conflict. Could, can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. Um, so by far the most important is the attack on a nuclear power plant, but let's talk about some others first. Uh, two radioactive waste dumps have been hit. Neither of them involve the release of radiation, thankfully. 
but one of the things I'm concerned about there is at least one of those radioactive waste dumps and possibly both of them were quite isolated. So I would think there's a possibility that they were deliberate strikes. Anyway, thankfully there were no radiation releases. Mm. Um, another place that has been hit is a nuclear research facility, uh, which, which is called the Kharkov Institute of Physics and Technology. And we don't know about if there's been a radiation release there, perhaps not. Uh, but one of the issues that arises from that is the long-term uh, security of these sites and the nuclear materials within these sites. Mm. And I think over the next decade or two, one of the things we'll find is that radioactive materials have gone missing uh, and that they're being flogged off on the black markets. So that's an issue that will play out over some decades. There's certainly no control over nuclear materials in Ukraine at the moment, um, either by national institutions, uh, let alone international institutions. And what about Chernobyl, which um, is on Ukraine's territory, which is now being invaded and occupied by Russia? Um, of course, the site of the former nuclear power plant disaster. What's occurring there? What, is that, what does this mean? Well, as I'm sure all your listeners know, Chernobyl was the site of the world's worst nuclear disaster in 1986. And as a result of that, they've still got that infamous reactor number four, which has got a very large amount of melted nuclear fuel, which they don't know what to do with. So they've simply built a containment dome over the top of it. And in addition to that, they've got lots of spent nuclear fuel still stored at the Chernobyl site. Um, it, it's not nearly as risky as the operating nuclear power plants because the Chernobyl reactors were all shut down 20 years ago or more. So the heat de decays exponentially, the radioactivity decays exponentially. Um, it doesn't require active cooling which is a good thing because the uh, apparently the electricity supply to the Chernobyl site has been cut off. Um, but there are still threats there. Um, one of them is that the staff have been held hostage effectively and they've been forced to work for a fortnight. There haven't been any shift changes. Um, they're, they're essentially working at gunpoint um, so there are there are significant risks at Chernobyl as we speak. Mm, that sounds, you know, a huge breach of human rights and the well-being of those staff at Chernobyl. So tell us some more about the risk for the nuclear, the operating nuclear power plants. And yeah, I've I've heard that some are being put offline. Or what is what is the status of Ukraine's nuclear power? Yeah, that's right. That will be one of the long-term lessons here is if um, you you want and need to be able to shut down your reactors when you're in a war situation and Ukraine has not been able to do that because they rely on nuclear for half of their electricity generation. So at the moment, eight out of 15 reactors are operating and those 15 reactors are located at four different sites, and there's at least one reactor operating at each of those four sites. And uh, as far as we know, three of the four sites are still operating under 
Ukrainian control, but one of them was taken over by the Russian military. It's called Zaporizhia, uh, and that was taken over about five or six days ago. I'm speaking on, uh, on March the 10th now. So it was taken over following a gunfight and the Russian military was attacking this nuclear power plant. Uh, the uh, a dry spent fuel storage facility was attacked, thankfully without the release of any radiation. Um, uh, something called a reactor compartment building was, was damaged. Uh, I don't know exactly how close that is to the reactor itself. Mm. Um, and there was also severe damage to a building which is described either as a training building or an administrative building. And some of your listeners will have seen photos of that building on fire. Um, anyway, if there's any good news coming out of that, there was no radiation release, or if there was any, it was minor. Mm. Uh, but the Russians now control it. So um, is, it, is that one still operation? is still online and Russia is... Yeah. Um, well, this is the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe called Zaporizhia, and uh, there's six reactors there. And even when it was directly under attack, uh, at least one of those reactors continued to operate, which is just extraordinary. Uh, and another interesting point of speculation is what on earth did the Russian military and the Russian government think was going to happen? Because... We did, we did dodge a bullet. There was no nuclear disaster, but there was a serious risk that this military attack would cause a disaster, um, possibly by breaching the containment of the reactors or more likely by cutting off power supply and electricity supply, which is absolutely essential for an operating reactor or even for a reactor which has just been recently shut down because you've still got a huge amount of radioactivity and a huge amount of heat and you must have cooling water and you must have power to supply the cooling system. Um, so an unbelievably risky thing to do, and I can't even begin to think what the thinking was on behalf of the Russians. Mm. Um, but as at Chernobyl and elsewhere, the situation is deteriorating. Um, apparently, there are three shifts of workers and they're being allowed to uh, swap over every eight hours. But that must be a very precarious affair because it's a war zone. Uh, and also, they're working effectively at gunpoint. So there must be a huge amount of stress and exhaustion. Um, I think it's only a matter of time before the number of people who are willing to come to work declines, either because they're getting killed in the warfare or they're fleeing the site or for whatever reason. Uh, there are reports over the past day of uh, uh, an electricity power line being damaged. I don't know if that directly supplies the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, mm. Um but obviously the stability of the electricity grid is, is severely compromised and at great risk for all sorts of reasons, whether it's the limited supply of electricity as, as nuclear plants and other plants are taken offline or just through artillery shelling, damaging power lines, which is what seems to have happened here in Zaporizhia, possibly in the town, the township which uh, services the nuclear plant. Um, 
so yeah that's where we're at now and yeah. uh, i can't even begin to overstress the risks of direct military strikes on nuclear power plants or the ongoing risks because of the vulnerability of the electricity supply uh and you know it's it, there's no way in the world that the russians have sent in trained reactor experts to make sure that this nuclear power plant is kept safe mm. i suspect it would be Russian military people who have very little understanding of the risks and that in itself is a huge risk. You've got the Russian military in control of a nuclear power plant and they don't know what they're doing. It sounds like a it's a truly terrifying situation and one that, yeah, so far has averted complete disaster um, but remains, um, yeah, remains really risky for those working there for Ukraine for, and as we know with nuclear for, you know, a potentially um, large scale catastrophe, I guess what's, are there any international bodies who could step in or what does the um, International Atomic Energy Agency uh, able to do in terms of securing the safety of these plants that are in a conflict zone? Well, the International Atomic Energy Agency and its the, uh, Director General, General uh, Grossi, uh, they're trying to establish safe zones or exclusion zones so that there's no fighting in the vicinity of nuclear power plants. But, the, I mean, it just hasn't happened. And uh, Director General Grossi is also trying to establish a meeting between himself uh, and Ukrainian authorities and Russian authorities um, to establish some parameters to uh, reduce the nuclear risks, whether that's exclusion zones or any other steps that might be taken to reduce the risks. But once again, nothing has come of that initiative. The, the meeting hasn't been held and no concrete measures have come out of it. So effectively the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, is on the sidelines and it's it's been quite ineffective despite its efforts to intervene. So all of this just seems to indicate, yeah, it's like a blaring alarm that nuclear power in war zones can't be managed safely. I mean, as Friends of the Earth, we argue against nuclear power even in, you know, peaceful times. Um, but are people questioning the precarity of nuclear power overall and could this contribute to, you know, the final, um, us getting rid of this absurd idea of the peaceful atom and that somehow you can have safe nuclear power even if nuclear weapons are deemed, deemed yeah. for the atrocities that they are? Yeah, um, I think it will be damaging for nuclear power in the mid to long term. In the short term, it's quite varied because, for example, Germany and Belgium are considering operating their nuclear powers power reactors for uh, a few more years um, to lessen their supply, lessen their reliance on Russian oil and Russian gas. Um, but in the mid to long term, it can only be damaging for nuclear power. Um, and I th I've been contrasting the current situation in Ukraine with the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario would be you have two evenly matched 
nations at war, both with a heavy reliance on nuclear power and because they're evenly matched, the war would go on for years. And because they're heavily reliant on nuclear power, they would have to continue operating those reactors. And even if there was an agreement not to strike the nuclear power reactors, then sooner or later there would be a deliberate or an accidental strike uh, and there would be a nu one nuclear disaster and the agreement would be uh, violated and voided, and then you could have multiple Chernobyl scales, Chernobyl scale nuclear disasters unfolding at the same time. Mm. Um, in Ukraine, they're not evenly matched nations. Russia is far stronger, and the fighting is only going on in one country. But Ukraine does match one aspect of that worst case scenario, which is its reliance on nuclear power. Uh, as I mentioned, it gets half of its electricity from nuclear power. And, uh, you know, that will be one lesson, even for countries which want to operate nuclear reactors. You know, it would have to be a maximum of, say, 10 to 20 percent so that you could take all of your power reactors offline, um, you know, as well before a war starts. Um, so that's one lesson. Uh, other effects will be boosting security, boosting the physical containment of reactors and all of that stuff will be expensive. You would also have strength and containment for uh, power systems and water systems supplying the reactors. And again, considerable expenses and more expense is the last thing that the nuclear industry needs because it has already priced itself out of the market effectively. Nuclear power is already far more expensive than renewables, even when you factor in transmission and storage costs for renewables. So, yeah, in the mid to long term, this is uh, one disaster, one more disaster for the nuclear power industry, piled on top of it, the other disasters it's had over the past decade. Uh, one of those being the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan in 2011, uh, and the other disaster, which has been catastrophic, is that the industry no longer has the capacity to build reactors in key countries like France and the UK and the US. So the few reactors that are being built are typically $10 billion over budget uh, and 10 years behind schedule and precious few are being built. So, uh, you know, who knows? When the obituary is written for nuclear power, it might be that those three disasters, the economic disasters, the Fukushima disaster and the current disaster that's unfolding in Ukraine will be the things that finally killed off this industry. Mm. Well, it's hard to find any, you know, I, I mean, I don't think we can really find silver linings from this conflict because, uh, but hopefully um, it is giving people a sobering view of nuclear power and just how vulnerable it is to any of the types of interruptions that happen in a conflict zone, let alone natural disasters and other threats as we've covered previously on the Radioactive Show. Thanks so much for sharing all that information with us. Um, did you have any final words or links for listeners to follow up on? Uh, yeah, we're going to be putting lots of information on the Friends of the Earth website. It's nuclear.foe.org.au. 
That was Dr Jim Green of Friends of the Earth Australia, and do check out their website. Earlier in the show, we heard from Dr Tillman Ruff. Tillman referred listeners to the ICANN website at icannw.org.au and the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which can be found at ippnw.org. This has been The Radioactive Show, produced for 3CR Community Radio and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. You can podcast our shows at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. And you can find us on Facebook. Thanks to the Nuclear Free Collective of Friends of the Earth Melbourne for their ongoing support. I'm Emma. Cheers for listening. And here's to a nuclear-free future. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is ours. Now you're a high